Welcome to the podcast for the NIH seed-funded R25 Education Grant, Discovering the Value of Imaging, administered by the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. Before you start this podcast, uh, please make sure that you've read the papers. Um, I'll get a short synopsis of each one, but it won't be as robust as having read the papers yourself. Uh, If you have read the papers, you can listen to this podcast without having to uh, refer to the papers themselves. But at the end of the day, it is a wholly more helpful if you actually have the papers in front of you as we talk about the individual papers themselves. The goal of this podcast is for us to have some time to talk about some individual papers that you'll read throughout the uh, couple weeks. Um, and if you do find it interesting, please feel free to share this with your colleagues. Uh, the podcast will be completely available, uh, openly available to anyone. Uh, and I look forward to hearing some of your feedback as well as we uh, go through this exercise. For this uh, week, we will be re- reviewing three papers, uh, Machine Learning and Medical Imaging by Erickson et al., Machine Learning and Prediction of Medicine, Beyond the Peak of Inflated Expectations by Chen and Asher, and Predicting the Future, Big Data, Machine Learning, and Clinical Medicine by Obermeyer and Emanuel. Your colleagues Andrew Rosenkrantz and Samantha Heller have submitted several questions that I will have selected and will address at the end of this podcast. So one question that I want to answer uh, for every podcast that we'll have in the future is why I selected uh, these particular papers. Um, well, the f- last two papers are definitely you know more broadly uh, associated with medicine in general. And I wanted to sort of give you a sense of what some of the prevailing ideas and thoughts were about how big data uh, will affect us downstream uh, and affect us as clinicians you know, in the future. I'll go into more detail into each one. Uh, and then I also wanted to give you something a little bit more specific uh, regarding imaging. Um, so a lot of the things in the machine learning and medical imaging paper are ideas that were covered in the theoretical section of, of big data. Um, but I thought it would be nice to just have a paper for you all to read to sort of get you off on the same foot and make sure that everyone uh, is on the same page. Also, the nice thing about the machine learning and medical imaging paper is that there is a nice glossary that started uh, that shows you a lot of the words uh, and definitions for all different aspects of modeling. I want to make sure that we had that uh, before we moved on and into some of the deeper papers. So let's get started. Uh, the first paper I'm going to review is uh, uh, Machine Learning and Medical Imaging uh, by Erickson et al. Um, and so for each paper, what I'm, rather than rehashing you know, what the paper is and all that kind of stuff, I'm going to really focus on a couple important themes or important uh, um, ideas that came up in the paper and really draw attention and talk a little bit more deeply about each of those. But before we get started, let's get everyone on the same page. Uh, I wanted to talk about figure one uh, and a little bit about some of the terminology there uh, and the pipeline and the training pipelines for machine learning algorithms. So in general, what we have is we can take a data set uh, and we can split it into sort of an 80% training set and a 20% test set. Uh, And with that training set, uh, what we do is we essentially have, uh, and that's what we use to build our model, and we take that model and apply it to the test set. So we may have a set of images uh, that are labeled. Uh, so you know maybe some uh, head MRIs that are labeled as benign or malignant. Uh, and then what we can do is we can go through uh, sort of a feature extraction process where we take that image and we sort of figure out what all the relevant things are. So if we had a you know well demarcated you know uh, mass in the in uh, in a in the heads in a head MRI, um, you know what we could do is just do sort of you know edge detection, right? Uh, so you can algorithm that detects edges and then tries to see if there's a mass, you know, uh, it can actually detect the edges of that mass. Um, and then you know we do that, uh, and then we send it to a machine learning algorithm, um, and so. 
the machine learning algorithm is what actually figures out, you know, from all those uh, edge intensities, uh, whether, you know, there is uh, a malignant or benign tumor uh, in this image. And it does it based on the labels. So it essentially says, oh, you know, the difference between um, a picture that does not uh, that is benign versus pictures that are malignant is that, you know, there's these edges, uh, you know, for this defined by this tumor that, that the system, you know, that, that only exists in the malignant data. Um, and so, you know, once we build that model, uh, you know, then we enter the testing phase where we take data, exact data uh, that the images that the system has never seen before that was not trained on. We apply the exact same feature extraction and then we uh, apply the model and then we let it classify the images as to whether there's a benign or malignant tumor in it. Um, and, you know, feature vectors can be quite simple. So one of the uh, most famous imaging tasks in the very, from the very first is something called the MNIST database. Uh, and this, in this uh, data set, uh, there are images of handwritten numbers. Uh, so the U.S. Postal Service used this to, you know, try to automatically uh, triage uh, letters uh, that were sent to them. Um, in this task, each uh, image was, um, each number was represented as a 16 by 16 image. Uh, and so the feature vector was essentially, uh, you know, one long row of 256 uh, um, image, uh, feature values uh, representing the intensities. Um, and so from that alone, you know, they're able to put those in the machine learning algorithms and, you know, in some instances, you know, get very high performances by not doing anything at all, by literally taking those 256 uh, um, uh, pixel intensities uh, and letting the algorithm figure out, you know, what the different numbers are from zero uh, to 10. Um, so, you know, that's just sort of a, you know, really quick, uh, you know, verbal uh, overview of figure one, uh, just to get everyone on the same page as, you know, what these things are doing. And as we go deeper into the course, um, you know, we'll get a little bit more insight into what these feature vectors are and how they're represented. Uh, and some of the papers we review, you know, that's one of the key, key ideas uh, is, is this idea of feature representation is how you take the actual image and what you're doing to it, uh, you know, to get it ready for the machine learning algorithm. So let's move on on to the sort of the the this the key questions or ideas that that I thought were interesting in this paper that are important to know. Um, the first is that there is uh, this um, robustness to errors uh, in labeling, um, and so a lot of times, you know, when I'm working with my um, you know clinical collaborators, you know, we'll be building a data set, and there'll just be this really big focus on sort of you know getting the label absolutely correct, uh, and you know this is just to say that. You know, these modern machine learning algorithms are quite robust to uh, errors. Um, and so if you're, you know, creating your own data set, you're doing some labeling, you know, just do the best that you can. Um, you know, it does, it's not often that you need to get, you know, three different radiologists in a room to, you know, and, and try to vote on whether something is one thing or the other. Um, because with these big data type of problems, we really depend on having lots and lots and lots of uh, data. So even if you get one element wrong, it's going to be okay. Uh, and the machine learning algorithm should be able to, you know, to figure it out. So that's one thing I think that's super important uh, to glean out of this information, uh, out of this paper. A second thing is this idea of single variable versus uh, multivariable. Uh, and so in the paper, they use this idea, uh, this example of weight uh, and obesity. Um, and, 
you know, oftentimes when we're thinking about a label, um, you know, the easiest thing we usually do is we, you know, look at a single variable and, you know, we run a correlation and we say, oh, you know, all these variables, uh, you know, this variable is highly correlated with the, the outcome. So therefore, um, you know, it's, it's important. Um, and that's certainly true. Uh, but, you know, one of the powers of machine learning is this idea of being able to approach problems in a huge sort of multivariable dimensional space. Uh, and so in this instance, you know, uh, an example, building on the example is that if I have height and weight, right, I could probably better predict obesity because it's really the interaction of both of those terms that, you know, give me, uh, that tell me whether someone is obese or not. And so and that's really what we want, you know, machine learning to do is to try to cull through all this data, trying to pull out, you know, what the uh, uh, what the important features are. The third point that I thought is important in this paper is, is deep learning uh, and the advantage that it brings. Um, and so why are so people so excited about deep learning? Well, it really comes down to this idea of feature construction. Um, and so, you know, you take these images and, you know, in the past, people would try to do all these specific things, right? They would try to identify edges. They would look at intensities and try to build algorithms, you know, around defining these things. And what deep learning has ended up being able to do is it actually can generate these features automatically. So you can just give it a set of pixel values, uh, as I was referring to the MNIST example, or if you have, you know, uh, a head MRI or head CT, just literally give it the, uh, the list of pixel values. Um, and it can essentially figure out like, okay, well, you know, what is important here? Is it edges? Is it, you know, how, um, you know, curvy the lines are um, or whatever the feature may be uh, to actually, you know, get the right classification to maximize performance on the right classification. Now, one of the opaque issues about deep learning, which we will certainly touch on more as we go through the uh, these papers, is this idea of explainability. Uh, and you know, even though these uh, learning algorithms do really well on classifying, say, malignant or benign tumors, you know, we still and we may be able to look at the images and you know cognitively think about what actually caused that image, you know, what actually makes it so that there's a, a malignant tumor in it. Um, you know, what we don't get is, uh, you know, what it's actually learning. Uh, and so that's something that we'll touch on more as we go along. Uh, and so the fourth point uh, important in this paper is a discussion about the exact, exact number of examples that we need to have uh, to, you know, have a successful machine learning algorithm. Uh, and so this is definitely um, sort of uh, an art, um, you know, Unlike statistics, uh, you know, where we calculate sample sizes and power analysis and other things to try to see how long it's going to take for us, you know, to get a certain confidence interval as, you know, as we're collecting data, you know, there's sort of not really a corollary uh, in machine learning quite yet. Um, and this is really driven, uh, you know, by how distinctive the classes are. And so an exercise I typically do, you know, with some of my clinician collaborators is, you know, we'll be looking at a problem and, and I'll give them a set of examples and ask them, well, you know, how, how easy, you know, can you tell? the difference between, you know, say a benign and malignant tumor, you know, in this image. And if it proves to be, you know, very easy, you know, for them to do something that, you know, even I could do sort of as, you know, not as a trained radiologist, you know, it gives me a little bit of um, um, sort of um, 
confidence um, that I can actually have a data set that's not really that large and still be able to you know, classify them into the right classes. So this is only really for a binary instance, right, of just saying whether something is benign or malignant. If you're doing multi-class types of things where you know, you're trying to you know, grade the tumor or do something like that, you know, th then it's probably going to require you know, more data uh, as, because you know, each individual grade you know, will have, need to have its own um, you know, enough data in itself for the classifier to learn, you know, what it needs to learn. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think to take away as we read these these uh, papers is, you know, what is the number of examples that people are using? Some of the papers actually do sort of what we call learning curves, uh, where they will, you know, take a, a data set that has you know, like 5,000 examples, and then they'll build a model of 4,000 and 3,000 and 2,000, 1,000, and see how that affects the test set. Uh, and so we'll sort of get some insight in, into some of that as we go along. So let's go ahead and talk about paper two now. Uh, this is Machine Learning and Prediction in Medicine Beyond the Peak of Inflated Expectations by Chen and Asher. Um, so a couple of the key points that I wanted to pull out of this paper uh, was number one, uh, this idea of, you know, um, causality and, and, the, and the things it identifies and whether those um, features that it identifies are useful in any way. Um, and so a lot of times, um, you know, we're running these machine learning models. So for example, um, you know, we have some mortality prediction models that we have uh, uh, running here at NYU, um, is that, you know, the model will predict whether someone will die in a certain time frame. But the features that it uses to do that prediction are not necessarily features that will, you know, that are actionable or that can change that person's trajectory at all. So in other words, there's no not necessarily a causal relation between the feature it identifies uh, versus that patient actually dying. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind, you know, as we're working with these machine learning models, is that you know they are just as happy working on correlations um, uh, in the data as working on actual, you know, causal uh, mechanisms. Um, and um, yeah, and so, you know, that's just something to keep in mind, you know, as we go along. Uh, a second point I wanted to, that I thought was important in this paper is, is sort of scoping out a problem. Um, so there was a, a small part which was talking about, you know, how do you reframe complex phenomena in terms of limited multiple choice questions? And they asked the question of like, well, you know, will this patient have a heart attack within 10 years? Are you more or less likely than average to end up back in the hospital within 30 days? Um, and so, you know, those are the types of questions, you know, that end up being quite amenable to a machine learning algorithm. Um, and there's the types of questions that, you know, when you're thinking about questions that you want to generate, right, from, from this course or, you know, your own problems, like that's sort of the, the kind of problems that, you know, you want to mentally frame uh, in your mind. Um, I can't go into too many details because it's kind of hard, uh, you know, to have specific examples. And, and hopefully as we go along and, and read these other papers, that's also a core takeaway that you'll get from, from this uh, uh, class is thinking a little bit about, about the types of problems that people are attacking uh, and how to frame those, those problems in a way that is amenable to machine learning. And then the third point was some discussion about, you know, machine learning uh, versus people uh, and this idea that, you know, when you look at the examples, you know, that a system identifies um, as, you know, malignant, for example, you know, you kind of will look at what the algorithm produces and you'll say, oh, you know, that's really obvious, right? I mean, I could definitely tell that without needing a machine to do that. 
Um, that's certainly, you know, a valid response. And I get that response quite a lot, you know, with some of our uh, mortality models that are running. Um, but, you know, what we've actually found is that uh, the model shines in being able to identify sort of the false um, negatives. Uh, and so the idea is that, you know, for us about all the people that die, right, if I give that to a human, the human will sort of overestimate uh, this mortality, uh, uh, overestimate more mortality. And so they will end up identifying more people who they think will die, who they think is sick, who actually don't die, right? Um, and so what ends up happening is that the model will produce uh, a prediction for a set of patients for where it thinks it's right, right? Where the positive value or the precision is very high. So in other words, every time it flags a patient as dying, it's going to be right 90% of the time, right? So we set the positive predictive value so it's right that given number of times. Um, and so that's where, you know, these machine models are really powerful and really nice because it's not that they, you know, just obviously produce an obvious patient who's really sick, so therefore there's no value and what it produces, it's that they're able to really hone in on the characteristics to differentiate a person that will die, right, a 90% chance of dying in the next, you know, 60 days uh, versus, you know, another patient who doesn't actually die in 60 days. Um, and so that's something important, I think, that that, that I wanted to mention uh, that the, the author kind of references in the paper uh, but doesn't really say it too explicitly. And then the next point is, you know, where will machine learning shine and, and how will it fit, uh, you know, into, you know, working with people? Uh, and so, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more deeply when we get into some of the questions that were asked uh, by Andrew and Samantha. Um, but I, I think, you know, just to give you a preview of that answer is that, you know, at the end of the day, it's really going to be machine learning and people working together that's actually going to produce uh, the very best classifications. Uh, and we've seen this, you know, in other fields. Uh, so in baseball, for example, uh, for those that are baseball fans, you know, there's something called sabermetrics, right? And there's a whole uh, movie called Moneyball um, where, you know, the author basically uses uh, statistical analytics to, you know, choose players and they build, a, you know, a winning team, you know, from this. And, you know, from places that have been using machine learning for a while, you know, that's kind of what we end up discovering is that, you know, the machine is able to, to do things in a very in a fairly narrow task driven by the representation of the data that you give it. And what the human can do is, in some sense, they can offload sort of that part of the analysis, right, that part of the thinking. And then they can incorporate their own thinking as well as other data to try to get at a better solution. Now, how do we do that in a principled way? Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, how we do that quite yet. Um, so how do we take the knowledge of the human and, you know, um, and, and combine it with the machine learning model in a way that we can reproduce that same outcome, right, for every instance? Uh, and I'm not sure how that will work out, uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's really going to be the machine learning with the people, you know, that will uh, be the, the, that will produce the best outcomes. And there's also uh, an onus for sort of validation as well. Uh, and that's something important to think about um, because, um, you know, these models uh, that are built always need humans in the loop. Uh, the moment you take humans out of the loop, 
um, you know, you really open yourself up to a lot of uh, regulation, especially by the FDA. Uh, and so, you know, once so the, the level of uh, sort of proof that you have to uh, drive to get FDA approval to have things be totally automatic uh, is definitely much higher. So the third paper I wanted to talk about was Predicting the Future, Big Data, Machine Learning, and Clinical Medicine by Obermeyer and Emanuel. Um, so there are a couple of uh, interesting um, ideas uh, to sort of uh, um, talk a little bit more about. Uh, the first is generalization. Uh, and so this is a huge question uh, that we don't really have really great answers for quite yet. Um, and so the idea is that if I build a model, you know, at NYU, uh, is it going to work anywhere else, right? Is it going to work at Penn? Is it going to work at Rochester? Is it going to work, you know, in San Francisco at UCSF? And, and the answer is, you know, we don't really know unless we actually take that model and apply it to the other place and then see how well it performs in that other place, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of efforts, you know, to try to pull data uh, and to, you know, try to see whether if you build a model using all the people's data, you know, does that mean it's better for everyone? Or does that actually mean that, uh, you know, uh, one thing, something that we, that someone does at UCSF actually is different than what it, we do at NYU. And so we actually decreasing the performance, you know, at NYU uh, because of that bias. Um, and so, and, and we don't really know the answer to that question yet, but, you know, every time we think about these machine learning algorithms and the models that they're building, you know, that's something that we keep in mind. It has always an easy critique of, of different papers, and it's always the go-to critique, actually, is to say, look, you know, there's the, the, there's no way or, you know, there's no proof that this model will generalize to my patients. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, that's a great algorithm. Uh, but, you know, give me that algorithm. I'll bid on my own patients. And I think it's going to be a better model than if I take your model and try to apply it to my patients. A second important point in this paper is this idea of quality inputs. Um, so definitely in the radiology world, you know, it's probably less uh, of an issue uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, the data is captured uh, sort of in a systematic way. The images are fairly systematic. You know, there may be variations between, there are variations between the different machines uh, and, you know, the images that, are, that they generate. Uh, but in general, um, you know, the data quality itself uh, tends to be fairly consistent. Um, and one thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, this is not always true. Uh, so, you know, especially if you're using electronic health record data, um, you know, the, what is captured in the electronic health record, what people record, right, is going to be very variable. And it's always important to keep in mind that, you know, this is an analog process uh, that is happening between a patient and their providers. And, and the digitization of that process is necessarily a manual process that's the providers just documenting things, right? Or the, uh, the machines spitting out vital signs and test values and other things. And so, or, you know, you have texts that go around, you know, and capturing vital signs and blood pressures and, and pulses for other people. And so all of these are sort of, you know, windows into what's going on with that patient, but they're all recorded typically in a manual fashion. And so that's something we think about a lot, you know, as we're building some of our models here is that, okay, you know, what parts of this data, you know, do we have to really get right versus those that we don't? 
Um, another important point uh, that I thought was interesting in this paper was this idea of subgrouping. Um, and so uh, Obermeyer and colleagues refer to this mortality model that they've built for which they're identifying, able to identify people that are at high risk of dying. And then they can sub-cohort within that group to identify specific uh, groups of people with specific characteristics that have a much higher sort of predicted value of, of dying. Um, and that's one of the you know, sort of cool things about machine learning is that you know, I can take a general model uh, and apply it to a set of patients, you know, f for mortality, for example. And then of the people that it identifies of having a high risk of dying, you know, I can break that up into the individual subgroups and actually find a group for which the model does well for, uh, and then I can build an intervention around those. And so that's a sort of a, a quality to always keep in mind as you're running these models so that even if you have a, a model that doesn't perform that well, well, there may be a sub-cohort for which it does perform very well, and it's always worth look, taking a look in, in that sub-cohort to see what's going on. And the last thing in this paper was uh, this idea of what actually machine learning is going to do. Uh, and so, you know, there were three things, right? It's going to improve prognosis, which I think it definitely will. Uh, it can also improve diagnosis as well. Um, so, you know, maybe we can use it to, you know, identify people with rare diseases or people that have, you know, multiple sclerosis or, or other things. And I think the burning question is, you know, and at least in this author's mind, is whether physicians, whether radiologists will be replaced or not. Um, and so, you know, um, it's a very, very interesting question, um, and I hope that, you know, I, so I have an inclination to give you my answer right now, but I actually don't want to do that, uh, and I think what we're going to do is, you know, at the end of the semester, you know, when we meet in March, um, you know, let's circle back to this question because I think we'll have a lot more technical background to help answer this question when we get there. Um, so let's just sort of table this for now um, and then sort of read some papers and get a sense of, you know, where the state of the art is. And then we can all collectively have a discussion about whether, you know, um, radiologists and, and pathologists, uh, you know, what role they will play in the future. So the next section is the reader question sections. Um, and so there were just a lot of wonderful questions from Samantha and Andrew uh, this time around. And some of the questions I'm going to actually hold off uh, to the very end. So I'm kind of uh, sort of compiling all these questions that I, I want us to address again as a group uh, in the in-person session. Um, so one of the questions was, um, is there a model uh, uh, electronic health record system that's available for allowing clean and accessible data? And our newer systems now being designed and marketed to offer records more suitable for mining. Um, and the answer is um, yes. Um, you know, both, uh, it's really worth talking about the two big heavyweights in the room, which are Epic and Cerner. Uh, and so in each instance, it is possible to get data, you know, out of these systems. Um, and so I think it's just about having a conversation, you know, with your IT folks about pulling the data and how, what you want and exactly how much of it that you want. Now, uh, one of the uh, difficult things is that the data is usually not very clean. Um, and so, you know, there's probably a substantial amount of work that has to go with data cleaning. Uh, but that's similar in general to, um, you know, any, you know, sort of big data, uh, data science problem is that, you know, we spend like yeah, 85, 90% of our time cleaning and only 10% on the actual machine learning. 
I think in radiology, you know, if you're focusing on, you know, imaging data, uh, that tends to be fairly high quality and more standard. Uh, and so, you know, as soon as the data comes out of the systems, you know, it's pretty much available for analysis. Uh, and when we look uh, at Section 3 and start exploring data sets more closely, you know, we'll see um, some of this um, as well. Uh, a second question was, um, you know, in, from the machine learning and prediction of medicine paper was this idea of, you know, the relevance of clinical data decays with an effective half-life of about four months. Um, so I, I'm glad this question was asked because, um, you know, when I read this, sort of my jaw dropped and I said to myself, what? Um, and I think, you know, for any specific clinical task, right, there will be a time estimate that is sort of valid. Um, and so it's not at all correct to make a broad statement that says that, um, you know, an effective half-life of any data, you know, is four months old. Um, however, uh, you know, I think there are general rules, you know, that we could follow. Uh, you know, so for example, if we're trying to predict, uh, you know, readmission, right? Um, so if we went to data that was like 20 years ago, Right. I mean, that would probably not exactly be a data set that would be re representative of today. Um, whereas if we did 10 years ago, maybe, but, you know, still kind of far back. Right. And, and practices have changed, you know, five years, you know, maybe getting better, uh, you know, definitely within the last one or two years. You know, that's probably the best data that we want to use, you know, to build uh, the training sets. Now, how far you actually go is uh, highly dependent on, you know, is dependent on the actual application. Um, and so, uh, you know, in that readmission example, you know, of course, you know, I want probably the first, year, the most recent one or two years because that data most likely represents the workflows and the clinical practices of how I'll be applying to the, uh, uh, to the, to the current patients uh, when I actually apply the model in practice. Um, so, uh, and then the next question is, um, how does this play into the seemingly onerous and something time-consuming challenge of creating a clean, validated, and tested data sets? Um, and so, you know, I think, and that's where, you know, you really have to think hard, you know, about, um, um, you know, the question you're trying to answer uh, and how much work do you actually want to do in terms of creating these clean and validated and tested data sets? Uh, so this is a nice question because I'm going to circle back to something I said really earlier. Uh, one of the first things I mentioned was, well, you know, how clean do you have data sets? How clean do data sets have to be for machine learning to work? And the thing is, is that they don't really have to be that clean. Uh, but I say that in sort of a broad broad strokes uh, really for any specific problem you know you do have to run some experiments to see whether you know you do have enough data um, you may have at least enough data for sort of a publishable you know actionable result um, you know there are many instances where you know we see models working quite well up to a certain point and then as we give it more data it just works even better and then well, and and then it just keeps on going, especially in deep learning applications. You know that's kind of sort of the trends that we see. And the third question I want to address was, um, uh, what may be user friendly, publicly available online tools that radiology radiologists could use to attempt AI and machine learning projects? Um, and so I think as we go along and as we read papers, 
um, you know, hopefully some of the methods will expose themselves uh, and we can sort of, you know, see what people are doing and what tools they're using to do these sort of things. Um, you know, there are huge platforms such as uh, Azure by Microsoft. Uh, Google has their own machine learning infrastructure. So does Amazon. Um, and I actually don't know uh, a lot of folks that are using those platforms, especially for clinical and medical data, uh, mostly because of the privacy constraints. Um, you know, people are sort of concerned about loading that kind of data into the cloud and, you know, doing the work that need to be done. However, those issues are being tackled actively as we speak. Um, you know, Amazon uh, definitely has a part of their infrastructure that's HIPAA compliant, uh, you know, where the data is secure and all on, you know, single servers and all that kind of stuff, uh, where these tools may be, you know, quite easily available. Uh, and a lot of these things can sort of be drag and drop, you know, in terms of applying machine learning models, you know, to a data set. Uh, and so I think we're getting there. Uh, unfortunately, in this course, you know, we're going to be spending less time on, you know, what tools are available as much as exploring individual papers and trying to understand, you know, what the pros and cons are. And I think the expectation is that as you develop, you know, your interest and, you know, your specific competencies that you would be able to, you know, uh, evaluate uh, an online offering and or, you know, collaborate with, uh, you know, machine learning data science person who can sort of, you know, figure out what tools are best, you know, for what task. Typically for deep learning and machine learning, um, you know, if you don't have access to a huge cluster, you know, the cloud resources are definitely a very nice way to go just because there's so much compute power available. And a lot of times, you know, some of these algorithms run for weeks or months right before they finish. And, you know, in those instances, um, you know, you really need to take advantage of sort of, you know, online tools and, and, and cloud-based tools and, and or clusters, you know, at your institution because, you know, that's not something that you want to manage, you know, on your own. All right, so that ends our first uh, section one of uh, our first podcast. Uh, so thank you. Uh, and so next time uh, we're reviewing two uh, sort of more theoretical papers. Uh, one is goes a little bit more into the theory and the other is to talk about, you know, how you should write machine learning papers and the kinds of things that you should have in them. So hopefully, you know, we'll have many questions to answer from those. Uh, and as we go along, we're going to get more and more technical as we dive deeper, deeper into uh, all sorts of papers uh, um, uh, about radiology and machine learning and big data. So thank you very much. And until we see you next time, thank you. Bye-bye.